I look back over the time that I've spent on this earth, and I can say from the point that I became a, a believer and understood exactly what my Lord Jesus Christ accomplished for me and believed in him and gained eternal life, that from that point on, I've had a happy life. And one of the things that concerns me, we have some friends, and, and uh, you just get the feeling that some people in this world, just even though they're believers, they just aren't happy. And you look at your life and you see how God has been working with you. I see this life as a time of training and preparation. We aren't ready for the big, the big thing yet. And that's once we enter into our Lord's presence. He's got a plan for us at that point that will take advantage of all the things he's been doing in our life through these years. There are those down times, those times when we struggle and have difficulty and we aren't as happy as we perhaps should be. But overall, looking back, I can't help but think, thank you, Lord, for the life you've given me. And as I look forward to the new year, I'm anticipating what God's going to accomplish in and through me. And it's exciting. And I know you feel much the same way. And I like to talk about the things that really make me joyful overseas. But when I get around people, the first thing they want to know is about all the problems and what makes you unhappy and what are the difficulties and all that. So let me just list a few of these. Then I'd like to share with you the joys. First of all, flying. From here, LAX uh, to Bangkok is a royal pain in the neck. And the general travel experience is, is very unpleasant. And one of the problems that I face is maintaining my Christian testimony in a traveling experience. Now, once I get over there, I get holy. But between Los Angeles or Denver, where I'm leaving from, and Bangkok, uh, or the destination in Burma or India or wherever. Uh, from there, you know, it's hard for me uh, to be as uh, spiritual as I'm supposed to be. Jet lag has not been a problem for me. Now, there's two things that I do to avoid it. One is I try to arrive as close to an evening situation as I can, and I try to force myself to stay awake until bedtime and the climate in the time zone that I'm in. And the second thing is I lift weights. As soon as I get there the next day, and the, the, the process of going through something physical seems to help me adjust. The hot, humid weather, I just, just don't like. And over there, uh, I try to schedule my teaching between fall and spring. And it's a little more survivable during that period of time than in the summer, where you have the monsoons and all that. And plus that, the guys can't really think as well when they're under a lot of sweaty pressure, as you would put it. The bad hotels. There's a lot of nice hotels that God has blessed me with and I've been able to stay in. But there are occasionally those hotels, like I had this last time, that just aren't very pleasant. And, uh, but uh, I always try to find a hotel. The air conditioning is run by the hotel, not by the city. Because the city's electricity goes down whenever everybody wants to use the air conditioning. And uh, it's very unreliable, the electrical situation in these places where I work. Food. I've seen all the white rice that I'd ever care to see in my life. <laughs> Last night we ate Chinese food and they, they uh, when I remembered, uh-oh, they're going to bring the white rice. So I said, let's drop the white rice, just bring fried rice. They don't like fried rice. I don't know why. It tastes a lot better to me, but they just love, they heat their plate with white rice and then they pour this... Uh, curry or some kind of sauce over maybe a little pieces of meat. And when they, when they chop up their food like a chicken, they don't take and separate the breast and the legs and all that. They just take a meat cleaver and just beat that thing to death. And then you're supposed to suck the meat off the bone. This isn't my idea of fun. But in any case, that's one of the downsides. And lastly, loneliness. But loneliness doesn't really affect me on the Weekdays when I'm working with the pastors or if I'm teaching on Sunday and all that. But maybe those times when I'm just alone in a hotel room. And my wife's here and my family's here and, and uh, you're all alone. Yeah, you feel a little bit of that loneliness. So I'm looking forward to this next time my daughter, Amy, is going to be going with me. And she's going to be teaching some of the, the ladies, uh, that I, the wives of the pastors that I teach. 
as well as some other ladies that are women leaders in uh, both in Yangon and in another part of uh, Burma. So it'll be nice to have her along as a companion. How about the joys? This is where I really like to talk about. First of all, experiencing God working through me, puny me. And I don't mean that uh, in a fallacious sense, because I genuinely don't feel that I deserve the privileges that I've had. But to see God at work through me, and I can sense as I listen to, as I see the men, the pastors, and their attentiveness, occasionally we have some women, but not often, but their attentiveness, they take notes, they do their coursework, they're very much into participation in class, they don't sit there and look at me with a stare, they ask questions, and I'm going to share some this morning that are difficult, and they answer my questions that I ask them so that I can see if they're getting the material. Because I, it's a, through an interpreter, so I don't really know completely what he said, so I'll ask questions to see if they're really grabbing it. And then I give them a test. Our B courses have tests, but I also give my own test to, tell, to see if I'm teaching correctly. And I tell them these tests are not a test that's going to affect their grade down. If they do well, I'll raise their grade, but it tells me if I'm doing a good job. And this sense that God is using me is, I think, the greatest joy that we as believers can have in our life. You, if you're out and you're sharing your faith with somebody, or you're contributing in the church in some way, as the musicians did this morning, or as Pastor Neil does in speaking, you just sense what a joy it is to serve our Lord. It's a great privilege. Secondly, experiencing God's provision through you and others who trust us enough and who believe in what he is doing through us to give us money, not us personally, but to put money into our mission, into the fund that I have to draw on, that's a real encouragement. I didn't think it would be. I was just scared to death of that part of it. But I've been going out, and when I'm here in the country, I go around and visit people, and uh, some people that support us, some that just pray for us, some that are just good friends. And it's just neat to see that, that there are people that are interested in what we're doing and some that are willing to give. What a joy that is. And then to experience the joys of new friendships. I can't tell you how much this means to me. I'm making actual friends over there. And they're first, the first level of friends are those that do speak English, the, the ones that interpret and, and have some things. I mean, I think of Vinod Rai, Tech Garun, uh, Santosh, Samuel Rai. Uh, Han Bhutan, Hannah, his wife, um, the list goes on. And then there are the level, the second level would be those that can't speak very good English, but there's just a connection there. I've got in my first group that I ever taught in Burma, and I'm still working with them. On my right hand is a man by the name of Ricky. That's his actual name. And on the other hand is a man called Lamin. And these are both grandpas. And they just are there so faithfully, but they love to kid with me. And we just have a great time talking about life. And they look back on their life, and I was looking back on mine. And, and just to know what they're going through. And, of course, we work with interpreters. They try to eke out a few words of English, and I try to communicate a little bit with them. But what a joy to have friendships that you can just sense our connection is through Christ. And then lastly, learning God's Word. The main thing that I try to communicate to these men is, once you've heard and gone through a course of B-World that I've taught you, you need to start a group in your community with other pastors and leaders, Christian leaders, with your wife, with people in your church, and start teaching what you've learned. Because when you teach it, you learn it. And that's what I'm experiencing in my work, is that as I teach it, I'm actually learning and growing. And that is exciting. And so I encourage you, wherever you are in your Christian life, teach what you know. Teach it, wives and moms, teach it to your kids. You should be faithful teachers in your home. Dad, you should be teaching your family. And you should be teaching wherever you have the opportunity, spreading what you've learned. It doesn't always have to be the gospel, because the gospel really is the New Testament if you get down to it. Teaching what you've learned, that's exciting. And that's what I've learned. And those are the things that bring me great joy. Talking about learning God's word, one thing that has forced me to learn 
is that I've been forced to answer questions from my pastors that I'm teaching that I've never thought of or that I just sort of accepted and put aside as difficult. Maybe I have a quick cutesy answer as we'll look at this morning, but I've never really gone into depth. Sometimes we accept scriptures and scriptural quandaries, you know, where they, it seems like this scripture just doesn't fit the theology of what we've been taught in the Bible. And that appears to be unsolvable, and so we leave these scriptures sort of alone. But when you're overseas, they expect answers that are scripturally sound. Don't bluff with me. Tell me the truth. Sometimes I just have to say I don't know. But a lot of times it's forcing me to go back and think, what is this saying? How can I answer this question, Lord? And to see God working at that moment has just been exciting. They need answers simple enough that a ninth grader, which is what most of them have an education, somewhere at the junior high level, that they can understand this. Now, they have a lot of life experience, which helps. But they need to be able to, we need to be able to communicate on a level they can grab it. Now, in teaching through books like Romans and Galatians, that's our first course that we offer when we start a group, or through B's Doctrine courses, which I'm currently teaching in a couple groups, there are two, what I call, what about questions that often come up. And these are what about questions regarding chapters of Scripture. There's two of them. The first thing is, they raise their hand, what about Hebrews 6? The second one is, what about James 2? I probably have been talking maybe about eternal security or the grace of God or the fact that we trust in Christ, we have eternal life, and they don't hear works mentioned. They don't hear the possibility of falling away, which is what they've been taught. And Hebrews 6, James 2. Now, under James 2, there are two what-about passages. First one's in verse 14, where he says, What does it profit, my brethren? If someone has faith and does not have works, can faith save him? Now, the key to that passage is, you've been well taught, I'm sure, is the word save. We think of the word save as like a trigger word, eternal salvation, going to heaven. But that isn't what James is talking about here. He's talking about salvation that's different than going to heaven. He's talking about a salvation that is actually something we experience in this life and ultimately a salvation from death if we waste our life. But there's a second what about passage in James chapter 2. And it's found in verses, chapter 2, verses 20. And uh, let me see if I've got this. Uh, I've passed out some. There it is. Okay. So I'm going to ask Neil Anderson. We'll call him Pastor Neil. Now, if you're over, I'm going to pretend here a little bit, and I'd like you to play along with me. We're going to pretend that you're all pastors or Christian leaders. And in comparison to many of the people I'm working with, you, most of you are. And I'm going to ask you to, I'm going to ask some of our people here as pastors to read some scripture to engage in the process of learning. And now I would follow up usually with questions to them personally to force them to interact with what they read. We don't have time to do that this morning, so I'm just going to ask some people to read. Neil, would you read James uh, chapter 2, verses uh, 20 to 24? Thank you. That's a what about passage. James is clearly saying that justification is by faith and works. And I've just been teaching on Galatians chapter 3. And put yourself in the position here. Uh, let me just read the passage that I would have been teaching in Galatians chapter 3. Um, Paul is, in, is emphasizing the work of the Holy Spirit resulting in new life that happens to us because of our faith, not because of our works in Jesus Christ or because of our works of the law. And then he continues, verse 6 of Galatians chapter 3, just as Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness, that is for justification, 
Therefore know that only those who are of faith are sons of Abraham. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel to Abraham beforehand, saying, In you all the nations shall be blessed. So then those who are of faith are blessed with believing Abraham. And they hear me teach on this passage. And put yourself a little bit into their position. Here you are. You're a pastor of a church. You live in a country which has few resources for pastors to use to understand the Bible. You have a Bible that has been translated by missionaries who themselves were of limited educational understanding. And therefore, the Bible you have can sometimes be misleading, not correctly translating the original Greek language that the Bible was written in. Then you add to this that, that you are um, a Bible teacher, and you're here to learn, and then you have this Bible teacher, who's also a pastor, teaching you. And he's just read this passage, and he's emphasizing that justification is not by works which we have done, but by faith alone in Christ alone. And that's what Galatians' theme is all about. Now, as this Bible teacher, myself, speaks and begins to unfold this truth, one of the students there raises his hand and he says, somewhere in the Bible, it talks about the faith of Abraham and that we have to have works as well as faith. And so I recognize the student. He asks the question. The other pastors are nodding their head. And so the question is, what do we do with that? Now, Neil's just read that passage. But let's put it in context. James writes in verse 14 of James 2, What does it profit, my brethren? If someone says he has faith but does not have works, can faith save him? If a brother or sister is naked and destitute of daily food and one of you says to them, depart in peace, be warmed and filled, but do not give them the things which they need for their body, what does it profit? Thus also faith by itself does not have works, it's dead. And jumping down to verse 20. But you want to know, O foolish man, that faith without works is dead? Here's an illustration. Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered Isaac, his son, on the altar? Do you see that faith was working together with his works? And by works, faith was made perfect? And the scripture was fulfilled, which says, Abraham believed God, and it was accounted to him for righteousness, and he was called the friend of God. You see then that a man is justified by works and not by faith only. Likewise also Rahab, the harlot, also justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out another way. For as the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without works is dead also. That's the context. And the guys are getting excited more. Come on, pastor. Let's see you how in this passage. It says right there, you can't be saved without, without works. It says your faith is dead without works. How do you explain that? Now the ball's in my court. So I have prepared a nice PowerPoint presentation, all slickly produced, put it on. No. They don't have any electricity that you can count on. Furthermore, there's no projection equipment there. All they got is a Bible, and they're pastors, and they've been working with the Bible. And they want somebody to put it together. That's what you're dealing with. So all I have to do is to start and trace this whole theme through the Bible for them and help them to see how it all unfolds in a more dramatic way. So I direct them back to the Old Testament. And the reading of a number of scriptures that are mentioned here in James, but which help explain what's going on here. And I would like to 
set then the book of James in a biblical context, which I think is absolutely important. So let's go back to Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 to 4. Genesis 12, verses 1 to 4. And I'm going to ask Pastor Dave Mansdorfer if he'd read that. I know you're not a pastor, but we're going to pretend. You've got to read out loud now because we don't have the amplification. Thank you. Now, did you remember, Dave, when we were reading this passage uh, from Galatians, Paul said that Abraham had the gospel preached to him, and he quoted verse 3 there of Genesis 12. Dave will say, I remember that. I will bless those who bless you and curse those who curse you, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Now, we begin to get a picture of that because we have a biblical perspective here. But Abraham didn't have that perspective at that time. God told Abraham in verse 4 to leave his land, Ur of the Chaldees, and begin a journey. And he did what God told him. Abraham was a God-fearing man. The gospel was preached to him, but he had not yet understood it at this point, at least in my opinion. When did it finally come together for him? I think he's been thinking about it. And that, that whole idea that in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. And he understood it was through him, through his seed. That he would bring forth something that would bring forth blessing to the earth. And of course, the gospel was already in, accepted, going back pre, pre-flood, all the way back to Adam and Eve. They knew that God would send a deliverer who would deliver them, in some sense, from sin and death. When Eve bore her first child, she said she was excited because she thought this is the deliverer. And you can track it all the way through the, the days of before the flood in which people understood and believed. But Abraham, he was a, an Arab sheik, we would call, in a distant place called Ur of the Chaldees, close to where you know, Babylon and Iraq is. And he left that, not really fully grabbing on to what God was doing. He hadn't come to faith yet in the gospel. He heard the gospel. God preached it to him, but he didn't really understand it. So when did he understand it? Turn over, if you will, to Genesis chapter 15, verses 1 to 6. And we'll have Pastor Elias Toscano read Genesis 15, 1 to 6. This term accounted to him for righteousness. In summary, Paul talks about that term, and he summarizes it with the word justification. Interesting passage, isn't it? Now, Abraham at this point was justified. He walked forward in church and confessed his sins, and got saved. No. He got down on his knees and asked God to save him. No. Somebody shared him a four laws booklet, and he said, yes, I, I want to do that. I want to pray, pray the prayer. No. The Bible says that he simply looked up and saw the stars, and God was making a statement. So shall your descendants be. And it seems at some point he was beginning to connect the dots. With Genesis 12, now Genesis 15, God had somehow been working in his life and he's beginning to say, he's going to bring forth a seed. Both singular and plural. But out of this plural seed, there would be a singular seed that is someone who is going to bring about my eternal salvation. It's going to make it possible for me to, to have my to be declared just in God's sight. Let me just say something about justification here. Justification is a term that if you use it in a church in 99% of the churches in America and you just throw the term out, that goes right over the head of most Christians. They don't have a clue. What in the world are you talking about? Justification. Let's put it in a context. Suppose somebody comes into my home and... Uh, I have a gun, and I wait and 
hopefully they're going to leave and find something and steal it and go. No, they barge into my bedroom. I don't know if they're there to rape my wife or shoot me or kill me. And so I pull the trigger and I shoot them. I kill them. I've committed murder in a way. Now, I go before the judge. The judge looks at the situation. And he says, first of all, he's looking at me. And he's seeing that I had no intent other than to protect myself, my wife. And then he looks at the situation. And he declares, based on the situation, that this, that this person, I'm standing in front of him, that I am someone that he would say, you've committed justifiable homicide. By looking at the circumstances, he declared me just in what I did. The jury looking on would probably agree, and I go free. Justification is a forensic act in which God is a judge. And he looks at us and he says, I see your sin. You have committed a sin. But I'm looking at Jesus, my son, who died on the cross. Now, Abraham doesn't know all this yet, but that's where God is looking. And based on that faith of Abraham, God declares Abraham just based on the work of his son that he would accomplish, which God sees as happening at every moment because God is beginning and the end. That's what justification is all about. He sees that we have faith. As a result of that faith, he gives us eternal life. And he sees his son who died for our sins, and he declares us just. Now, that's what happened to Abraham here. But come back to the point. It didn't happen because Abraham walked forward in church. It didn't happen because he prayed a prayer. It didn't happen because he did anything. He simply looked into the heavens and somehow in his heart, he was connecting the dots and saying, I believe this. And it's at that moment, God says, you're justified. You're born again. You have eternal life. Now we go over to Genesis chapter 22. A little different twist. I've asked Pastor John Varela to read that verse, and it's rather lengthy. So, John, I figured you got the voice. Power it out, because there's no amplification here. I dare say that Abraham, his faith is matured quite a bit between chapter 15 and chapter 22. Because now he had the faith. Not only has he looked into the heavens and saw the stars, but to do something. In this case, to sacrifice his only son. The son, the unique son of promise, through whom he was going to bless all the, the nations of the earth. And Abraham, he said, God will provide. As the book of Hebrews says, he knew that God was able to raise him up even if he took his life. That's the kind of faith he had. And he was willing to go through with this which must have broke his heart. But nevertheless, he trusted God. And of course, God said, you know, Abraham, because you've done this, I'm going to bless you. He'd already given him justification. He already had eternal life. But now, Abraham is going to be the object of enormous blessing. And through him, God again emphasizes the fulfillment of the blessing that he had promised for all the nations of the earth. Because of what he did. That's the key here. We need to keep it in mind. God and Abraham were moving forward in their relationship. And through Abraham, God was going to bless all the nations of the earth. In addition to Abraham, who would have, his descendants would even have power over their enemies. God stresses. This is exciting. In fact, when you think about Abraham, what story do you go back to? Most of us couldn't find 
if somebody just caught us off the spur of the moment, when did Abraham become a believer? First passage, Genesis 22. The story of his offering Isaac. Because that is something he did, and we saw it. Written for us in Scripture, but we saw it. We might have read through Genesis 15 and passed over the fact that Abraham didn't do anything. He just believed God, saw what God had showed him in the stars. Connected the dots and believed. But God saw what was going on in his heart. We couldn't see it. But we can see this. And because of this, Abraham became known as the friend of God. Fast Pastor Jack called to read two verses. 2 Chronicles 20, verses 5 to 7, and then Isaiah 41, verse 8. Jack, now raise your voice. Here's Jehoshaphat, a good king, and he's making commentary on the fact that Abraham is your friend. And he was looking back, I'm sure, to Abraham's life of faith and the works that he did. First work being offering up his son, or willingness to offer up his son. But not only was Abraham called a friend by Jehoshaphat and other kings and leaders of that day, as well as in our day, three religions call Abraham the friend of God even in our day. Judaism, Islam, as well as Christianity. Move on to Isaiah 41, verse 8. Jack? God calls Abraham his friend. He didn't call him his friend because of what he saw and believed. He called him his friend because of his maturing faith and what he brought about in Genesis chapter 22, the willingness to sacrifice his only son. He trusted God so much. God says, here's my man. This is my friend. Now let's go over to Romans chapter 4, verses 1 to 3. And I'll just read this. I knew we'd be short on time. Romans chapter 4, verses 1 to 3. What shall we say then that Abraham our father has found according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. The implication is there, and this was my standard answer for this quandary that we're talking about here, was, well, there's justification before men. And that's true, and that's where we're headed. But let's go to the depth of this whole, this whole scenario here. Verse 3. For what does the Scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was accounted to him for righteousness. This was the basis of his justification, was his faith. Chapter 4. Yeah, Romans 4, verse 9. Look carefully at this. Verses 9 to 12. Does this blessedness then come upon the circumcised only or upon the uncircumcised? He's talking about Abraham's blessing. For we say that faith was accounted to Abraham for righteousness. How then was it accounted? While he was circumcised or uncircumcised? This is a critical, critical mistake many people make who take a works-based theology. The word uncircumcision uncirc- here is a reference, sort of a deities for the whole law. It's, it's a term that's referring to the whole law, and the first step in keeping the law was for a male to be circumcised. And obviously the, 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 implica- the, the illustration there is the seed is being passed on from one to the other, and in the seed of Abraham, the deliverer would come. And that's why in being circumcised, they were testifying to the fact that they were hopeful of the seed. But that was the sideline scripturally. But here he's talking about the law. And it's interesting, the first step in the law was to be circumcised. And Abraham believed God and was justified before he was circumcised. So that supports Paul's point that the law had nothing to do with it. Continues on, how then was it accounted while he was circumcised or uncircumcised? Not while circumcised, but 
while uncircumcised. And he received the sign of circumcision and a seal of righteousness of the faith, which he had while still uncircumcised, that he might be the father of those who believe. Though they are uncircumcised, that righteousness might be imputed to them also. His argument is Gentiles can be saved without having to keep the law. Just like Abraham was saved, eternally saved, justified without having to keep the law. Because they hadn't even been circumcised yet. And just a sideline here, let me just mention a couple things about the law. Because there's a lot of confusion that people have about it. Why did God give the law? Well, clearly, not because it was a way for people to be saved in the Old Testament. One of the criticisms that I often hear of the theology that I would support is that we teach two ways of salvation. The Old Testament, you're saved by the law, and the New Testament, you're saved by grace. That's nonsense. The law has absolutely to do, has absolutely to do, have nothing to do with an individual's salvation in the Old Testament or the New Testament. It was always by faith as it was with, with Abraham. Many Jews who kept the law weren't saved because salvation came by faith in God's promise to provide a deliverer who would deal with our sin and death. That was the case in the Old Testament. So why did God give the law? He gave the law to set a nation apart. God loved all the nations of the earth, all the families of the earth, all the people groups. But they were all caught up in all kinds of sin and idolatry and all kinds of wickedness. And God says, I'm giving the law to set this nation apart so the rest of the world, all the other people groups, can know what, my, what I expect of them as a nation. And if they move toward keeping the law as a nation, they'll be blessed. If they move away from keeping the law, they shall be cursed. Does that ring any bells here in our own country? If we have regard for the faithfulness of, of a man and a woman in marriage... And as a nation, we uphold that, we'll be blessed. If we don't, we'll be cursed. If we celebrate unnatural acts between men of the same gender, or men and animals, or women and men, women, we'll be not blessed, but we'll be cursed as a nation. If we revel in idolatry, and idolatrous practices that keep us from turning our attention to the true and living God, we won't be blessed. We'll be cursed. As a nation. It's talking about blessing or cursing today in the nation. Why are all these things happening in our nation? When we turn away from basic morality, we're going to experience cursing or God's wrath. His wrath is poured out upon us today. And this is what the law was intended to send a message to all the nations of the earth. And we would be good as a nation, this is a side, to take that message to heart. Because we're not experiencing God's blessing today. We're experiencing His beginnings of His wrath. Fortunately, there are believers in this nation. I think that God because there's more than 10 righteous. He'll spare the nation in some sense until we're taken out of here. Moving on. Abraham clearly became a justified, believing saint of God prior to keeping the law. It had nothing to do with his eternal salvation. We read on to the next passage, Romans chapter 4, verses 19 to 22. And listen to this and carefully. It's so beautiful. And Abraham, not being weak in faith, did not consider his own body. Here he is, an old man, older than I am. And his wife, older as well. Already dead since he was about 100 years old. And the deadness of Sarah's womb. He did not waver at the promise of God through unbelief. And God said, at this point, Genesis 15, you're going to be the father of a host of descendants like the stars of the heavens. And one of them is going to be the deliverer, the Messiah. Abraham, I believe that. 
and he's 100 years old. I'm going to have relations with my wife, and we're going to bring forth a child at this age. You've got to be kidding. And now David didn't say, you're not kidding. He said, I believe God. And that's what God justified him on. And so we continue. And he did not waver at the promise through unbelief, but was strengthened in faith. How is our faith strengthened? We mature in faith. We become more confident, more persuaded that God is able to do this and do that. Before it was just an ideal. Now it's real. Giving glory to God, declaring that God was able to do that. Verse 21, chapter 4 of Romans. And being, not, and being fully convinced. If you want to know what real faith is, it's being convinced. Fully convinced. Abraham was fully convinced that what God had promised, he was able to perform. And therefore, it was accounted to him for righteousness. He was justified on that basis. That's what Paul's saying. Now, with all that in mind, let's move on to our passage. James chapter 2, verses 21 to 24. Writing to brethren, keep that in mind. James wrote his letter to Christians, to brothers in Christ, to those who were believers. And he said, basically, faith needed to be joined to works. Verse 21. Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he looked up into the stars and saw the heavens and God made a promise and he believed him? No, it doesn't say that. He was justified by works when he offered Isaac on the altar. That was his work. But what did he mean by justification? Do you see that faith was working together with his works? And by works, faith was matured, made perfect. It became mature. And the scripture was affirmed or fulfilled, which says Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness. The scripture was affirmed. And what Abraham did... Going back to Genesis 15, this is what the scripture said. He believed God and was counted to him for righteousness. And then over in chapter 22, we see the residual of that. We see that in his acts, he was affirming exactly what scripture had said. And we know as human beings, by looking at what he did, that he was indeed justified by faith alone in Messiah alone. And he was called the friend of God. Who called him a friend of God? God did. He didn't call him a friend before Genesis 22. But also the nations called him a friend of God. Why? Because they were looking at what he did when he offered Isaac on the altar. That was his works. We can't see what was in his heart. Therefore, we have to look at a person's works and say... I declare that person is a justified, born-again Christian. You see then, a man is justified by works and not by faith only. He's talking about being justified by the basis of what we see. God sees the heart, but only God sees the heart. What we see are people's works. In this passage... We are being called upon by James to so live before men that they might testify that we have been justified by God and that we are God's friend. As people look at your life and my life, will they say, there's a friend of God? There's someone who's been justified, declared just and right in the presence of God? Or will they look at our lives and say, I don't know. I don't think so. But also, we're called upon that we, those who have been justified, as he saw our faith in his son, that we might experience even greater blessing as we manifest 
our justification by the works that we do. Do you want to experience God's blessing in this life? Then you need to put good works to your faith. You have eternal life. If you die this moment, you may die prematurely because of sin, wrong in your life, but you'll be with the Lord. But if you want to be blessed in this life, you need good works. That's what James is saying. And our blessing is dependent upon our good works. James is really trying to drive home something here that I think we can clearly see. If somebody came in the door right now in tattered rags, they'd been walking down along the freeway, and they had nothing. And you could tell by the minute they walked in, they smell. They haven't shaved in days. And they walk in, and Jack Culp stands up and gives him a seat. James says, there's a, there's a Christian there. And you say, well, and we, we often use this term carelessly. We say, well, so-and-so is a Christian, so-and-so is not a Christian. And we're making a judgment of their eternal destiny. That's not right. We don't know if a person has faith in their heart. Only God knows that. What we can see are their works. And it says in Acts chapter 11 that the believer, that the disciples were first called Christians there because of what people saw in their life. So it's, every, it's appropriate if we keep the word Christian in context to say, well, yes, he's a Christian because I see his works. Now, that doesn't mean if I don't see his works that he's not a believer. We don't know that. We can't see his faith. We shouldn't make a judgment about that. Our current president claims to be a Christian. I don't know. I can't tell you what's in his heart. I couldn't tell you what's in the hearts of the presidents we've had in the past. I can see their works. And I can make a decision. I can say, well, yeah, that's a Christian. That's a disciple of Christ. There's a difference. It doesn't mean that I've condemned them to going to hell. I don't know. And the other thing that we need to keep in mind is when we're thinking and teaching and, and working with people, most people in our country, and in fact in the world, it's all about two things. It's, they're on one plane. You either go to heaven or you go to hell. But in God's teaching, as you know, really only one book of the Bible, the Gospel of John, deals with that issue primarily. And it's all about eternal life through faith in Christ. But the rest of the New Testament was written that we might not just think in terms of getting into heaven, that we might think in terms of what we're going to do once we're there. What kind of opportunities is the Lord going to give us? Talks about reigning with Christ. And many people think, well, I don't want to sit on a throne. I don't want to be in charge of something. Well, reigning with Christ is a broader concept that I think has the idea. Are we going to be participating in the kingdom? In the glory of working and serving our Lord with gifts and talents he's given us? Or do you really just want to go and play golf for all eternity? I, can, I think I'd get bored playing golf every day for all eternity. Even now we'll get bored doing that. We've got to get out of our minds this idea that we're just... Just getting into heaven is all about, it's what it's all about. You know, when, when a baby's born, do you just want to see the baby stay there forever? When a, baby, when a baby turns to be 10 years old, do you just want to see a 10-year-old stop at that point? We call that a tragedy. And it's sad when it happens. And we reach out and love people who have to deal with that. It's a lot of work. Because all of us want to see a child grow up and mature. And God is the perfect parent. And yet he's got children that aren't maturing. Go figure. They're just babies. And it breaks God's heart. We need to be wanting to grow and mature and become all that God wants us to be as his children. Like Abraham. He didn't stop at Genesis 15 when he believed. He went on and matured his faith to the point that he was willing to trust God who said, go and offer your son, your only son. My goodness, what faith is that? Beyond anything I can comprehend. 
But nevertheless, that's what God has called us to. That's what James is driving at. We need to be the people that are willing to give up our seat. When the poor person comes in, it's so sadly trashed. Oh, sit here. When we call on people that to, to help in the church and do things, and you've got a gift that might help. I'm ready. I want to serve. What can I do? What can I do to serve my Lord? Because I want to grow, and it's when we're thrown into the, the fire pot, so to speak, of serving that we really grow. And that's what I was trying to share with you. I'm still growing, and I'm excited. I dread the day that I, that I get to a point and I just have nothing else to do. I thought, well, someday, if I'm just totally incapacitated, maybe I can at least make a phone call and tell somebody I love you and use my life constructively somehow, even at the end. May the Lord just take me out of here quickly. Praise God. But nevertheless, we want to be serving, serving, serving. And that in serving, we're growing and maturing and stretched. And that's what God wants for us. Don't just be sitting on pews week after week. That's a work. That's an important work that we should do. We should be faithful to the church, faithful to give, faithful in the basics that we associate with a good Christian. But we want to go beyond that and be involved in what God's doing. That's what James is talking about here. He's not talking about how to go to heaven. He's talking about what we're going to do when we get there. Let's pray. Our gracious God and Father, we thank you for your word, for the way it encourages our heart and strengthens us, helps us to become all that you want us to be. Lord, I thank you for the privilege I've had as a pastor now to teach pastors what a joy you brought to my heart. But I know everybody here, you uniquely love them and you're working with them and you've got things for them to do. You've got an exciting vision for them to lay hold of. And I just pray you'd show it to them that they have the courage the power of your spirit to take hold of it and experience your blessing in this life and your blessing in the life to come. Oh, Father, we thank you for the joy of our eternal salvation through Jesus Christ. In his name we pray, amen.